The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the insight that your word gives us into history and an understanding of what the real issues are in history. And now, Father, especially as our nation faces the war against terrorism and as Israel continues to face the threat of violence from the uh, Palestinians in the Middle East, we pray that you would give the leaders of our respective countries wisdom Father, especially we pray that believers in the United States might have the proper uh, understanding and perspicacity from Bible doctrine of what is going on in the world. We pray that we might, uh, in our calmness and in the fact that we are relaxed because we know the truth, that you might use that as a way of witnessing to many people that they might come to an understanding of the gospel. Father, we pray now as we continue our study this evening that you would continue to help us understand these things that we might understand and have better, better, a better grasp of the things that are going on around us and that we might be able to uh, understand the affairs of our time through the grid of Bible doctrine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, now that we have all this new sound system, maybe it will, uh, I'll sound better. I'll, I'll... When I was in Houston this last time, I was introduced to a to a lady who was on, had been listening to many, many tapes, and she was really surprised because I didn't fit her visual expectations. She thought I was short and fat. So, Al, you've got to fix it. You know, make my voice sound tall and lean, you know. At least, <laughs> open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now, we began two or three lessons back in Daniel 8 going through the historical fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of Antiochus IV of the Seleucid dynasty 
in uh, what is now Syria, who was, was called Antiochus Epiphanes. And we see in this chapter that the, he is the fulfillment of the prophecy, but in his fulfillment of the prophecy, he also serves as a type of, of the Antichrist. Now, a type is, a, is an analog. It's a, it's a model. It is a picture, a, a shadow representation, as, as it were, of, of, the, of something in the future. Uh, this big debate that goes on in prophecy studies is whether or not there's such a thing as double fulfillment, and I think we have to be careful about using that terminology because double fulfillment implies that every detail is fulfilled. When, when a prophetic passage is fulfilled, that means every detail comes to pass. But every detail does not come to pass in this passage or in any other prophecy twice. Whenever they talk, someone talks about double fulfillment, there's always in one of them something that's missing. So it's more correct to talk about one fulfillment, but maybe a second reference or a type. And so the actual fulfillment of this passage takes place in the ancient world in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, but then God the Holy Spirit is using him as a picture of the kind of ruler the Antichrist will be. And one of the things that comes out of the study of Antiochus Epiphanes is the intense hatred he had for the Jews, so much so that he, uh, uh, when he invaded Israel and took over, he abolished all of the sacrifices, all of the religious observance. It was a death penalty for any mother to uh, circumcise their son. It was a death penalty if any anybody was caught reading the scriptures and all sacrifices, all prayers, all the temple service was halted. In fact, he went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and put a, a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. So he is the the uh, ultimate example of anti-Semitism and someone, a, an earthly ruler, who is at war against God. Now, anti-Semitism is something that is really the seed of the devil, a child of the devil, because anti-Semitism is Satan's attempt to try to destroy the Jews so that God cannot fulfill his promises to Israel. In the Old Testament, God promised Israel a specific piece of real estate. That real estate would have boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates and over to the Mediterranean. So most of the area that is now Transjordan or the kingdom of Jordan, most of the area that is uh, part of Iraq, uh, much of Syria is part of that land that God promised to Abraham, and God has never given that to Israel. There are many other blessings God has promised to Israel in the Old Testament that they have never received. So if Satan can destroy every Jew before God fulfills his promise, then Satan thinks he can win. So that is why anti-Semitism must be fought every step of the way. And one of the things we've discovered in our study, our look beginning last time in Islam, is that at the core of Islam is a uh, an anti-Semitism that is one of the worst forms ever to developed in history. And last time I began to look at Islam, and we looked at Islam, Antichrist, and anti-Semitism, trying to understand what's going on today, but I didn't quite finish, and I want to go back and just pick up a few things that, that I covered at the end rather rapidly and then wrap it up uh, before we get into 
uh, finishing up Daniel chapter 8. Now, I was looking at the Israeli, uh, at the Arab-Israeli conflict, and especially uh, today, in the news today, the Arab summit going on in, in um, uh, Beirut and the problems that, that are going on there, just like a soap opera every day, who's going to go, who's not, who walked out today. Of course, the Palestinians walked out today because the Lebanese wouldn't allow uh, or block the airwaves so that um, Arafat's uh, message to the Arab assembly uh, couldn't be broadcast to them. So, you know, the Arabs can't get along. So there's this, this idea of Arab unity is just, is just a, a farce. But they, they, um, I mean, it's just like a, they almost look like the Keystone Cops, except it's very serious and very dangerous, and many people are being killed in the process. The last time we saw that the underlying, the core issue, even though many Palestinians and Arabs may not admit this, their leaders do. The core issue is Islamic. It is a religious issue. It, uh, the Islamic Research Council stated that the Palestinian question is not a national issue, nor is it a political issue. It is first and foremost an Islamic question. The Muslim worldview cannot conceive of religion divorced from politics, whereas the Western worldview can't conceive of religion affecting politics. So that's why Americans have such a difficult time understanding what's going on in the Middle East. But in the real issue here is that in Islam, any land, any territory, any nation that is ever once under the control of Allah can never be lost. It is, it, it is great loss of face. They, they can't stand it. Allah can't stand it. It's, it's the height of blasphemy to steal land that once has been under the domination, under the control of Islam. And so all of that area that we, that is called Palestine, that's Israel, was once under the, the control of, uh, Allah. So they are bound by their religious beliefs to take that back. Otherwise, it is a slap in the face to Allah that, uh, not all the territory is still under His is not still submitted to him. And, of course, that's the meaning of Islam, is to submit everything, the whole world, to Allah. We looked at the development of the conflict, and it's important to understand this, because the Palestinians make certain claims about the land, that they are a national people, that this is their land, and they have a historical right to the land, and they are doing everything they can to build a case that they have a right to the land. That They, they, they claim that, they, that the term, one claim is that the term Palestine really is etymologically derived from the old term Philistines, and that the Palestinians are the historic genetic heirs to the Canaanites. And Islam, I mean, Israel stole it from the Canaanites uh, in uh, 2400, uh, or excuse me, 1400 B.C., and the uh, Jews are trying to steal it away from them again, but they are the uh, modern descendants of the ancient Canaanites. Um, all of that is false, and they are the masters of propaganda because in all of the Islamic countries there's no such thing as freedom of press. The press can only operate if it spews forth hatred and, and, uh, and vengeance against Israel and against the United States. They have to toe the party line, and so nobody gets the other side of the story in any Islamic country. But the facts are the Jewish immigration began in the late 19th century under what was called the Zionist movement that actually didn't become formalized uh, until 1897, and the key leader was a man by the name of Theodore Herzl. By um, 
19, the early 1900s, 1918, you have the Balfour Declaration, you have the, the British Mandate, which gave all of the land that Israel now claims, the land that the Palestinians claim, and all of modern Jordan was part of that, um, <clears throat> the land that was supposed to go to Israel. But then in 1929, the, the Arabs who lived there uh, had several large riots and killed a, uh, and massacred a large number of Jews. In order to resolve that situation, the British offered a solution that violated their own mandate in the Balfour Declaration. And then on May the 14th, 1946, the British gave the eastern four-fifths of the land, now that's, that's 80% of the land, that is Transjordan to the Arabs, and that became the modern kingdom of Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And in night, just by way of note, in 1968, King Hussein of Jordan, that's after the 67 war, that's important to understand. See, the fight over the, the West Bank right now, the fight over the Gaza Strip is that th- that territory was taken by the Jews when the Arabs invaded in the 67 war. And that's what the Palestinians are claiming, that, they, that it's occupied territory and the Jews need, need to get out. But in 1968, a year after that war, King Hussein of Jordan said that Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. So they have played fast and loose with these terms, and by changing the meaning of the terms, they have basically changed the entire entire debate. In fact, Arafat in 1974 affirmed that. He said, what you call Jordan is actually Palestine. Going back to the origination of the modern state of Israel, in 1947, the UN again partitioned the land uh, and gave 23% to Israel. Uh, Partitioned the 23%. Okay, let, let me back up. Uh, originally, the Arabs got 77% of the land, which was the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Then of the remaining 23%, that is further divided so that the Jews only got about, uh, 83, I mean, 80, only got about 17% of that land. 83% went to, uh, the Arabs, and that is the, what the, uh, Palestinians have and what they claim, what is now part of the West Bank and, and Gaza Strip. So uh, in 1948, when the Jews got that small parcel of land, the Arabs invaded, and Jordan annexed the area known as the West Bank. Uh, Egypt annexed the Gaza Strip. And the Arab governments at that point told all the Arabs living in that land to flee because they were invading. The Arabs that fled became the homeless refugees, about 600,000. The Jews never forced any Palestinian, any Arab, to leave his home. They left voluntarily, and they left because the Arab nations surrounding them were invading and told them to flee for their own safety. The, the uh, Arabs that stayed make up, uh, remained in Israel. They are today citizens of Israel. They make up 18% of the electorate, and they have freedom to worship. They have free, uh, free speech. They have freedom of the press. They have... Uh, all of these freedoms that you have in a democracy, if they lived in the Palestinian-controlled area, they would have none of that. So uh, the Palestinians are what they are because of a decision they made that was grounded in the anti-Semitism of the Arab countries that were invading Israel. Now, I also covered a little bit about who the Palestinians are. I mentioned the fact that the term, that the term Palestine does not derive from the 
ancient Philistines. And this one argument for that is that in the in the Septuagint, when the Jews who translated the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek translated the term Pelesit, or the uh, Palestine, which is the term for the for Philistines, they did not use the term Palestinian. They used, they just transliterated it over into Greek. In fact, uh, as uh, my friend Randy Price has demonstrated in a tremendous uh, way in his recent book, Unholy War, uh, the term <coughs> actually derives from a Greek word, polistes, which meant a wrestler, a rival, or an adversary. And remember the meaning of Israel, the name uh, given to Jacob by God, at, at when when Israel wrestled with God, was a name that meant one who wrestles with God. And so the Greeks typically, in the way they love wordplays and the way they love puns, was they used their word for wrestler to as their name for Israel. So the term Palestine was used for Jews and for Israel, even in the ancient world. Philo, who was a Jewish historian who lived down in Egypt, wrote of the the land of Israel and called it Palestine and called the people who dwelt there Palestinians. And that's before the time of Christ. Josephus, who lived after the time of Christ, but still in the same century, uh, Josephus also called that land Palestine and the people who dwelt there, the Jews, Palestinians. So the term Palestinian up until the 1970s was a term that was synonymous with Israel and Jews. It was not a term that was used of the Arabs, unless they were people who Arabs that lived in that particular area. Now, the so-called the, the modern Palestinians of today do not have a historic claim to the land. In fact, their roots in the land only go back again to the late 19th century. About the same time, the Jews were moving back to Israel and purchasing real estate as they were as the land was recovering. As they, as the land was recovering because they were beginning to irrigate, they were beginning to farm, uh, they were beginning to plant trees and crops, they needed workers. And so many migrant workers came into the area from, uh, Europe, from South, uh, Eastern Europe, from other Arab countries, Egyptians, Turks, Armenians, Armenians, Italians, Persians, Germans, Sudanese, Hungarians, Tartars, Scots, English, French, just a mix of people moved into into that part of the world and moved into Palestine. And they were the migrant workers. They were not the landed class. They were not people who um, owned territory. And in 1947, when Israel became a modern state, only 3% of the land was owned by Palestinians. The rest of the land was owned by uh, Jews. But you never hear that from the Western press or from the Palestinians or from the Arabs. The land during most of the time from the time of Christ up until the 19th century was occupied by nomadic Bedouin tribes. And most of that time it was under the domination and the control of the Ottoman Empire, which was not an Arab empire. It was Islamic, but it wasn't uh, Arab-based. It was Turkish. The... Um, the Palestinian claim, though, is that the land actually belongs to them and that they have a right to it and the Jews need to be driven out completely. To do that, they have adopted a means of violence and terrorism in order to drive out the Jews. And since 1993, 
The Islamic Jihad and Hamas and various other terrorist groups have launched over 150 suicide attacks, but the concept of a suicide attack is itself is a misnomer, because to us it is suicide, but to them it is not suicide, because they are doing it in self-defense. They believe that because they have had this land taken from them, they believe they have a right to that land because it was once under uh, Allah's control. Therefore, what they are engaged in is they would use what we would call a self-defense argument. And so they are actually martyrs to Islam. They do not view that as committing suicide. So when we use the term suicide bombers, that, that term itself reflects our own Western orientation and our lack of understanding of just exactly how they are, are looking at everything. But since uh, 93, in the last nine years, there have been uh, well over 150 suicide attacks, maybe even more. There have been over 50 in the last six months alone. And since the Palestinians began what is called the Al-Aqsa Intifada, now the term Intifada means an uprising. You'll hear that a lot. And the Al-Aqsa is one of the mosques on the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock is the one we think of most most of the time, but there are several. There's at least five mosques on the Temple Mount, and when uh, Arafat, I'm not Arafat, but when uh, the Likud and uh, Ariel Sharon uh, went there on a legitimate visit, and which I will explain in a minute, in September of 2000, that's when the Palestinians so uh, allegedly began the Al-Aqsa Intifada. It actually began. Uh, before that, but that's the, uh, once again, that's propaganda. It did not begin then. It's not Sharon's fault. They were already rioting and it had already rioted. But since that time, there have been uh, over 6,000 attacks on Israel military facilities, Jewish communities, public places, and private vehicles. The question that is on everybody's lips at this time is, is peace in the Middle East even possible? And I would say if there is a peace, if there is a ceasefire, it will only be temporary because according to Islam, the Palestinians, the Arabs, must throw the Jews out completely. So they will use a ceasefire. They will, they will try to regain control of the, um, of the disputed territories, the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. But it's simply a holding tactic. Once we get control there, then, then, we, we may let a measure of stability return so we can regroup our forces, and then we'll go to the next level of attack. So the real question is, do the Palestinians ultimately really want peace, and can they and are they willing to coexist for a long period of time with a, an Israel of any size in existence? Abu Musa, the leader of the Fatah, Interface, another uh, terrorist group, said of peace efforts that they were a farce and a waste of time and that they can, their group continues to promise to intensify the Intifada. Uh, Ahmad Jabril, the Secretary General of the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, uh, stated that the uprising will continue and get stronger despite U.S. attempts to bring calm to the Middle East region. Armed struggle will continue, and such meetings which are held according to Zionist will and under American orders will be of no avail. I do not think that even this peace plan floated by the Saudis is going to have any kind of long-term results. Uh, they are not in... Um, let me see. 
they are not in accord with any of the uh, beliefs of any of the what we call extremist groups, which, as I've shown, are not really that extreme. Uh, for example, the Hamas has issued the following communique. Number one, all forces of our people backed by our Arab and Islamic nation are determined on persisting and escalating the intifada until eradication of occupation from all usurped land. So they want to get the Jews out completely. Point number two, we urge the Palestinian Authority to break away from the so-called peace process once and for all, adopt the resistance program, refuse all forms of coordination and negotiations and security meetings with the enemy, and not to be deceived by American promises. And third, they stated, we ask our people in the diaspora, that's Palestinians living outside of Arab lands, that means in the U.S., and there's over 7,000 living in New Jersey alone, to display more interaction with our people's intifada in the occupied homeland and share with them in the duty of resisting occupation. That's a call for terrorist activity in the U.S. So this is not a surprise. There Muslim clerics continue to call for the destruction of Jews and Christians. For example, a Palestinian cleric at the Gaza Mosque broadcast on Palestinian TV stated on September 21, 2001, wherever you are, kill the Jews and the Americans who are like them. A, the Palestinian Authority Mufti Ikram Sabri in his weekly Friday prayer sermon at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on, in Jerusalem on July 11, 1997, prayed, O Allah, destroy America, for she is ruled by Zionist Jews. A well-known Islamic slogan is to kill the Jews on Saturday and kill the Christians on Sunday. There is no ultimate desire for peace in the, on the Islamic camp, not when you have their key leaders praying prayers like this and issuing statements like this. Edwin Locke, who's the Dean's Professor of Leadership and Motivation at the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland at College Park, writes, The two sides are not equal. Every Arab country is a monarchy, theocracy, or a military dictatorship. Freedom of speech, property rights, free elections, and the separation of church and state are almost non-existent. Israel is the sole country in that entire region that recognizes individual rights. The non-violent, non-PLO-supporting Arab who lives in Israel enjoys far greater freedom than he would in an Arab nation. The fundamental goal of the Palestinians is destruction. Why such seething nihilism? Consider that when the Jews came to Palestine, it was a desert. People were living in the same primitive manner as they had been since the time of Moses. The Jews brought Western knowledge and values to the Middle East. They turned an almost barren land into a modern industrial civilization. They raised cities where there had been only dirt. They developed irrigated farms where there had been only dry sand. They built cars and trucks and planes where there had been mainly pack animals. What are the stated goals of the Palestinians? The ultimate goal is not an independent Palestinian state, but a Palestine that is completely devoid of Jews. This is why Arafat rejected the largest offer of land ever made by Ehud Barak two years ago at Camp David II. The reason Arafat rejected it is if he had accepted that, that tremendous offer of land, then he would have lost face before his own people because they want all the land, not some of the land. 
According to a PLO declaration, the struggle with the Zionist enemy is not a struggle about Israel's borders, but about Israel's existence. The goal is clearly understood and supported by none other than former UN Secretary General and 2001 Nobel Peace Prize recipient Boutros Boutros Ghali. Boutros Ghali stated the Jews must give up their status as a nation and Israel as a state and assimilate as a community into the Arab world. The UN is historically anti-Semitic. Since 1947, the UN has issued over 50 uh, resolutions condemning actions by the Jews, and they have not yet issued a single condemnation of anything that the Palestinians have done. The Arabs want to destroy all the Jews. Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah states, there can be no peace until the Jews return to their countries of origins. Now, many people think, well, the Palestinians ought to have some rights. Didn't the Jews force them out to become homeless, landless refugees? Well, that's the Arab lie, but that is not the truth. The truth is somewhat different. And uh, at the time of, in 1948, when Israel became a nation, the U.N., mandated only a small portion of land to the Jews. At the time, Arabs owned only 3% of the land, but the U.N. resolution gave the Arabs 82% of the land. They rejected that, and instead they had a military assault on Israel. Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Jordan, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq deported at that time over 600,000 Jews from their countries. They stole everything. They robbed their bank accounts. They took their cars. They took their homes. They took everything they had. The Jews could only leave with what was on their back. In contrast to that, the, the Jews did not uh, steal anything from any of the Arabs who left. They, they still could go back and get their bank accounts. They still had rights to whatever they'd owned. But the Arabs had used that as an excuse to steal everything from the Jews. The 21 Arab states easily could have absorbed the original 650,000 Palestinian refugees in 1948, but they refused to do so even though their land mass was 700 times larger than that possessed by Israel. The Jewish population of the new nation at that time was only 600,000. They not only absorbed about 600,000 refugees from Arab countries, they also absorbed over 800,000 refugees from from Europe. Nevertheless, Arabs remained in Israel and today still have more freedom, as I said earlier, than any, uh, any Arab living in an Arab country. Now we need to ask, what does Islam really think about the Jews? A couple of quotes are illustrative. First of all, and from the Hamas spokesman, the Israelis should understand that their existence is the only provocation in the area. The very fact that they claim the land, that they are there, that's the reason there is a fight. The Quran states, in the family of Imran, Surah 112, they, the Jews, have incurred anger from their Lord, and wretchedness is laid upon them. So there's justification from the Quran to, to destroy the Jews. Furthermore, the Quran states, Allah will raise against them, that means he will fight against them, until the day of resurrection. So obviously, if Allah can't be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, because the God of the Quran is continuously um, fighting against the Jews. Furthermore, in another quote from the uh, from the Heights, number 4, 
in the Quran, we read, This is our enemy and the disease that plagued our lands. They, the Jews, are cursed like Satan. This enemy is also sent out to launch war on people exactly like Satan. They are the enemy, so beware of them. Allah confound them, how they are perverted. Furthermore, we have other statements from the Palestinian Authority as well as uh, uh, other groups that give us a better understanding of what they think of the Jews. A Hamas leaflet from September the 1st, 1993 states, We are announcing a war against the sons of apes and pigs, which will not end until the flag of Islam is raised in Jerusalem. Yasser Arafat stated to Arab ambassadors in Stockholm on January 30th, 1996, We Palestinians will take over everything, including all of Jerusalem. We plan to eliminate the state of Israel and to establish a Palestinian state. See, they're not looking for a cooperative thing. They don't want to have a Palestinian state and uh, an existence alongside of, of Israel. Sheikh Ekrima Sabri, uh, the Palestinian Mufti of Jerusalem, on July 11, 1997, states, The Muslims say to Britain, to France, and to all the infidel nations that Jerusalem is Arab. We shall not respect anyone else's wishes regarding her. Furthermore, Faisal al-Husseini stated on November 28, 1997, If Israel persists in not recognizing Palestinian sovereignty in the eastern part of Jerusalem, it is the Palestinian side's right to demand its rights from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So they want all the land. Now, what is going on today with this latest intifada? What is uh, what has happened? Let's get a little contemporary look at history. It's usually blamed, as I stated earlier, on the visit of Ariel Sharon to the Temple Mount on Friday, September 29, 2000. But is that true? We need to look at the facts. The Palestinians had, at that time, been voicing threats of an uprising for several days ever since it became known that members of the Israeli government were going to visit the Temple Mount. On that day, September 29, 2000, Ariel Sharon and a six-member Likud delegation, that's the conservative party in Israel, entered the Temple Mount through the nearby Mugrabi Gate. Their purpose was to investigate the building of a Muslim mosque at the site and reports that underground construction work was destroying valuable archaeological remains. By the way, the Jews have been digging under the temple, I mean the Arabs have been digging under the Temple Mount and removing semi-truck loads of artifacts for the last several years in their attempt to destroy all evidence that there's ever been a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. Now the question is, did Sharon and that Likud delegation have a right to go on the Temple Mount? Were they violating some sort of law or some sort of treaty? No, they had a legitimate right to do this. They were accompanied by 1,000 Israeli police officers, Then they were necessary because of all the threats. They were accompanied with a representative team from the Waqf, which is the Muslim Supreme Council that maintains jurisdiction over the Islamic mosque. So it's not just the, the uh, <coughs> officials from Israel, but they were accompanied by Islamic officials as well. Sharon and his team never attempted to enter any mosque. They were merely surveying the construction. When interviewed by reporters, Sharon stated, The Temple Mount is in our hands and will remain in our hands. It is the holy site in Judaism, and it is the right of every Jew to visit the Temple Mount. 
See, Israel regained control of the Temple Mount in the 1967 war, but Moshe Dayan turned it back over to the Arabs. Uh, nevertheless, the Jews maintained security on the Temple Mount. When Sharon went on the Temple Mount, the Palestinians rioted. Thirty policemen and four Palestinians were wounded. Palestinians claimed that Sharon defiled the mosques. Arafat claimed it was an affront to the Muslim holy places and called for all Arabs and Muslims to move immediately to stop these aggressions and uh, Jewish practices against holy Jerusalem. The next day, the Palestinian Mufti, who's the leader of the Palestinian uh, Muslim, in a sermon accused the Israeli government of desecrating the Al-Aqsa Mosque and called for a jihad to eliminate the Jews from Palestine. That started another riot. But what's the rest of the story? Israel had maintained legal sovereignty over the Temple Mount since 67. And for 34 years, it's been the responsibility of the Israeli government and Jewish police forces to guard Islam's uh, mosques and to guard the Temple Mount and to protect the Arabs there and to keep Jews off the Temple Mount. Jewish police surround the Temple Mount to keep Jews from getting on the Temple Mount. And they have successfully done that since 67. Furthermore, no one ever thought to publicize the decision of the Israeli Supreme Court, which protected the Muslim workers on the Temple Mount, even while they were in the process of destroying irreplaceable and priceless archaeological artifacts. The Western media never publicized the fact that no one in Sharon's group ever tried to enter a mosque, and they never did anything to a mosque. In fact, the whole trip up onto the Temple Mount was videotaped by Israel's Channel 2 news group, and it tells the whole story. Nothing happened. Five months later, on March 2, 2001, almost a year ago, the Palestinian Authority Communications Minister, Imad Faluji, finally admitted that the Intifada was not a reaction to Sharon's visit, but had been planned since July. The violence actually began two days before Sharon's visit at the Netzarim Junction by the Palestinians, and then more events occurred the next day. But the whole thing, once again, centers around what's going on on the Temple Mount, and everything focuses on the Temple Mount. And this is important, as we will see when we get into the next chapter in Daniel chapter 9, because that's where the abomination of desolation takes place. So we have the... uh, Statement in the fatwa by uh, Osama bin Laden and other terrorist leaders that the whole issue is to protect and free the Temple Mount, that one of the reasons they attacked on September 11th was to get America from, prevent America from supporting Israel so that they could free the Temple Mount. Everything is related to uh, Israel's presence in the land and the Temple Mount. So to understand what's really going on, we have to understand the religious framework and the religious background. And this has been true ever since the events uh, in the 2nd century B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded the Temple Mount and desecrated it. So let's turn back to Daniel chapter 8 and pick up our study beginning in verse uh 17, beginning in verse 17. Now what's happened is in the first part of this chapter, we went through the vision and that Daniel has an interpretation of the vision given to him by Gabriel. And in verse 17, we read, So he, that is Gabriel, came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened. 
he is so frightened, his heart's racing, he just passes out, he swoons, he, he loses control, and, and he just falls on his face. And Gabriel says to him, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, we're going to come back and investigate that phrase. What does it mean, the time of the end? That sounds to our ears like the end times, like the end of the church age, perhaps, end of the tribulation. What does that mean? Verse 18, Now, while he was talking with me, that is, while the angel Gabriel was talking with Daniel, I sank into a deep sleep, with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. Now, I want you to notice, and you'll see this several other times when when prophets have this kind of close encounter with an angel or with God, that it affects them physically. Notice how this, at the end of the chapter, Daniel says that he was sick for weeks after this. I mean, his, it's like our mortal body can't really handle the presence of God or the presence of angels. Think about that the next time you hear somebody claim that they saw an angel. You know, always good to start with what, what happens in biblical events when, when angels appear. So Daniel sank into a deep sleep, and, and then the angel jerks him upright to listen to what he has to say. Now look at verse 19. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it be- pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now what time of the end is this? Is this a time of the end related to what was happening in that period, in that dispensation, or is this a time of the end related to the the end times of Israel, what we call the tribulation? Daniel 8.17 uses the same phrase, the time of the end, and this is just the Hebrew word ketz, which means the end, the end of an era, or sometimes it's used to refer to the final end time period in human history. In 8.20, just to give you a reminder, that Daniel had seen a vision where there was a ram. And uh, this ram had two horns, and that ram represented the two kings of Media and Persia. And then it was attacked by a shaggy goat, and that, according to the angel, is represented the kingdom of Greece. So we saw that, that under Alexander the Great, the armies of Media and Persia were defeated. And the Lord large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, and that large horn is Alexander the Great. Then in verse 22, And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place. So that horn breaks. That's when Alexander dies at an early age and is replaced by four horns that arose in its place. So you have this bizarre picture of one large horn being knocked off, and out of it, its root four uh, smaller horns grow up. And he says those four horns represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation. And we studied those uh, several weeks ago. That's uh, Cassandra and uh, Lysimachus and the Seleucids and Ptolemies down in Egypt. Then in verse 23, and in the latter period of their rule. Now notice that. In verse 22, we say that four kingdoms which will arise from his nation. And then verse 23 says, and in the latter period of their rule. Well, whose rule is that? What does it mean, the latter period of their rule? Well, whenever you have a a pronoun, and you have a plural pronoun here, their, you have to look to its nearest antecedent, the nearest concrete noun that it could refer to. And if you look back at verse 22, that is the four kingdoms. 
So verse 23 makes it clear that it is in the latter period of their rule, that is, the rule of these four kingdoms. So it is at the end of the Grecian era before Rome comes to the forefront and before the time of the, the uh, New Testament. And one, of the, one thing we realize is the dates on Antiochus Epiphanes are between 171 and 164 B.C. And Rome arises in 149 B.C. And the last uh, Seleucid dies in 129 B.C. So this is clearly at the end of that period of the Greek Empire. It's not quite the last days, but it is at the end of that period. And so that fulfills uh, the prophecy. Then we read a description of his power in verses 24 and 25. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and, and he will prosper and perform his will. He'll do whatever he wants to. He's going, God is going to give him the, the freedom to run amok. He will destroy mighty men and, holy, and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Now, this is, a plot, this is directly fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. For example, his power is mighty. Uh, he was able to defeat the Egyptians, and he was able to... Uh, overrun Israel, but according to this, it's not his own power. He gets his power from somebody else. So apparently there is some demonic influence with him. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. And he went around and he, he pillaged all of the temples and stole all the money from the temples because they were used as banks. And he remember he was trying to uh, get enough money to pay off uh, pay the reparations to Rome. And he prospered and performed his will and he destroyed mighty men and the holy people. And in his wars, he wiped out and destroyed many of the great generals of the armies uh, and the great leaders in the armies that he was opposing. Then verse 25, it's through his shrewdness. That indicates that he was, he was cagey, he was cunning, he was crafty in the way he, uh, uh, in his strategy against his enemies. Furthermore, it states, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. So he is deceitful. In his approach, he will magnify himself in his heart. That refers to his own arrogance. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. That is, they will think that there is peace. It reminds me of many statements in Scripture where people will be saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. The Jews were thinking there would be peace and that they could somehow compromise with him, and they couldn't. And then finally, it states he will, Scripture states he will even oppose the Prince of Princes. And he did, does that, he did that by erecting a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificing a pig on the altar. So he's opposing, uh, the Prince of Princes, who is the Messiah, by his assault on the temple. But he will be broken without human agency. And according to ancient sources, he died from some horrible disease where he basically bled out internally and he had terrible cramps and uh, doubled over and just died a horrible, uh, devastating death. But he wasn't killed in battle. He wasn't killed by uh, some other individual. He wasn't assassinated. And he, God uh, uh, finally took his life. 
Now that is how this passage is fulfilled in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. But there is a greater application in this. Let's go back and look at a couple of things in the passage that we bypassed earlier. Look back at verse 14. For he, and he said to me, for 2,300 more evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now that tells us that this is taking place historically during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. This was a six year, little over six year period, six, approximately six years and four months, and it's during the time when Antiochus was overrunning Israel. And so this gave the Jews a me, uh, message of comfort that this was a short a period of re- relatively short duration, and it would come to an end. Now, when we look at the passage, and we look at the passage when it says that he will um, destroy mighty men, and uh, or, excuse me, back in the in verse 23, that it will be in the latter period of their rule. Let's try to put this together with some other elements that we've seen in uh, in the prophecies in Daniel and Daniel 7. And Daniel 2. Daniel 7.12. After we go through the the prophecy of the beasts, remember the various beasts that we went through, the bear and the leopard, uh, I mean the lion, the leopard, and the bear, and then that great horrible beast that represented Rome. At the end of that, uh, Daniel states, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So their dominion continues down through history. Then in Daniel 2.35, uh, back when we go back to the uh, original statue dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that the whole kingdom, the, the kingdom of man, even though it starts with Babylon with the head of gold, and then you have the Medes and the Persians with the torso of silver, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans with the iron, uh, there's one rock that knocks that whole kingdom down. There, there are elements of each empire, elements of each kingdom that, that continue and uh, go through history so that today our culture is what it is because there are many remnants, many ideas that are still prevalent here that are holdovers from the ancient Babylonians, from the Greeks, from the Romans. And <clears throat> this is all part of the kingdom of man, and that will not be destroyed until the final end time. So there is there's a double element here that's talking about what will actually be fulfilled at the time of Antiochus, but there is a a a a, a double reference here because it refers to the situation that will occur at the end of the um, period for Israel, what we call the tribulation. Now, a question comes up at this point, and that is, why in Daniel uh, 7-8, Daniel 7, verse 8, does the beast of the tribulation come out of Rome, and in Daniel 8:23, the beast appears to come out of the Greek empire? In Daniel 7-8, you have the little horn, which is, comes out of Rome, and in Daniel 8, the, uh, the little horn comes out of the Greek empire. The only way to reconcile... Daniel 7, 8 with Daniel 8, 17, 19, and 23 is to say that the beast of the tribulation, the Antichrist, will come out of the remains of the fourth kingdom, Rome, which succeeded the third kingdom, Greece, according to Daniel chapter 7. And that 
in, according to Daniel chapter 8, where we have this beast coming out of, of Greece, indicates that there are certain elements of Greek culture which has been granted an extension of life according to uh, Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2. So you have two things happening. You have the fact that there's going to be this political entity that's the fourth beast that's going to, that's going to be the political base for the Antichrist, and yet the Daniel 8 passage indicates that it bears a resemblance to the Greek culture. And so it's going to have an ideological, philosophical root in Greek culture. Now, in our culture today, in 2002, these four streams of culture inherited from ancient history all have come together in Western civilization in many different ways. And it's just as much a part of our culture. In fact, our culture has more to do with Greek democracy. We keep thinking about this country, we hear of this country as a democracy. And yet in its founding, if you go back and you read the thoughts of the founding fathers, their model was ancient Rome. It wasn't ancient Greece. They were building a republic, not a democracy. It wasn't until there was a shift in the education system in this country in the early 1800s that there began to be a model. Uh, the focus went to Greece instead of Rome. And it began to think of this country more in terms of a democracy as opposed to a republic. And that began to change our orientation so that today we're very democratic. We try to have, reduce everything to its lowest common denominator so that everybody can have uh, the same opportunity and the same uh, be treated in the same way. And that's produced a number of problems. But a lot of this has its roots in the kind of thinking that came out in the late in the liberalism and communism and socialist thought of the late 19th century. So when we look at... Uh, the beast that will appear in the future, politically he has its roots in old Rome and elements of the ancient Roman Empire. But in terms of ideology, he's going to have the same approach that we see in so many modern politicians, give everything to everybody and everybody's equal and is going to have, have its roots more in Greek philosophical thought. Now let's look at verse 23. Verse 23 we read, in the latter period of their rule when the transgressors have run their course. Now, in terms of its fulfillment, this term, transgressors have run their course, this is the phrase, haposha'im in the Hebrew, it's a cow participle, and it indicates rebellion against authority. Now, in terms of its its immediate fulfillment, this was in the time of the rebellion that occurred at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. But in terms of its typology, it relates to the end time because these kings, these kingdoms are all in rebellion against God. The, the Babylonian, the, the Babylonian, the Media Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires are all part of the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of man is man's attempt to establish meaning and purpose and stability and peace on earth and wealth and happiness and everything apart from God. So what God is saying, he's, he's going to allow all of this to come to its ultimate uh, conclusion, and when he's let all this run its course, then there will be this, this final uh, judgment. When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, and he is described as insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now this takes us another step further. Antiochus pictures this insolence and uh, of the Antichrist. Now when we look at the word insolent, 
in your, as it's translated in the New American Standard Version, and in the King James Version, it's translated a man of fierce countenance. Now, actually, in the Hebrew, it means a man with a strong face. Now, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and that helps us understand what this means. In Deuteronomy 28.50, there is the prophecy to Israel that there will be a nation of fierce countenance who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. So that shows us that this term, uh, fierce countenance, has to do with somebody who has... Uh, uh, who it has no compassion, they have no mercy, they are not concerned about the old, they're not concerned about the young, and this is one of the characteristics of both Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, the Antichrist. He will be ruthless, he will have no compassion for the poor, no compassion for uh, the, old, the elderly or, or the young. Furthermore, he is going to be skilled in intrigue, and this is literally in the Hebrew. It is the word umavin hidot, which means he, the word bean has to do with understanding or discernment, and mebin is a participle form, meaning that he is a man of understanding, and the term hidot is the word for riddles. This is the same word that's used of, uh, of uh, uh, Samson that he was someone who understood riddles, and it's also used of Solomon, that Solomon was brilliant because he was a man who was able to discern uh, riddles. He had a uh, great brain, great critical thinking skills, and so this is a person who's going to be able to think through all the knotty problems of the Middle East and come to some sort of resolution. In verse 24 we read, And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And this tells us, uh, in terms of the Antichrist, that he is going to be indwelt by Satan. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. And if you read through Revelation, the pop, if a Revelation, the events of the tribulation were to occur today, when there's 7 billion people on the planet, about 6 billion people would die according to the figures in the tribulation. There's going to be massive death and, and catastrophe during the tribulation. It's going to be, the more I read Revelation, the more bizarre that period of time is going to be. I think demons are going to be thrown out of heaven halfway through the tribulation and they're actually going to be walking on the earth invisible to people. So it will be truly a time of final judgment for not only mankind but also for the angels. In Daniel 8.25, we're told more about him, that he is going to be a man of extraordinary intellectual capacity. He's going to uh, manipulate nations and manipulate people. He's going to uh, be in power. Uh, he's going to be powerful militarily because he will be able to take over uh, he's going to, of course, we saw in Daniel chapter 7, he's going to defeat militarily three other nations and then force a European alliance. We read in verse, uh, let's just summarize this. Summarize, summarize the characteristics of the Antichrist, the Antichrist that we pick up in these verses. First of all, he is going to appear in the latter time of Israel's history. And we'll see this in Daniel chapter 9, that it is at the end time of the 70, the 70th week, or the last seven years in Israel's history. So he appears at the latter times of Israel's history. Two, now remember, all of this is by application from the typology. Secondly, through alliances with other nations, he will achieve worldwide influence. 
He's going to ally, ally himself with other nations and achieve worldwide influence. That's in Daniel 8, 24. Third, he is going to develop a peace program that will help his rise to power in Daniel 8:25. Fourth, he is extremely intelligent and persuasive Daniel 8:23. He will convince people of, of the legitimacy of his plans and his power. Fifth, he's characterized by satanic control. He will be indwelt by Satan, Daniel 8:24. Sixth, he is a great adversary against Israel and the Messiah, the Prince of Princes, in Daniel 8:24 and 25. And seventh, uh, a direct judgment from God will terminate his rule in Daniel 8:25. So, this passage is actually fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, but in that fulfillment it teaches us it is a type of the Antichrist, and from that we learn several things about the Antichrist and his uh, characteristics. Then we come to the last two verses. Verse 26, In the vision of the evenings and the mornings, and that's what this is called, that's the title of this because of the 2300 evenings and mornings, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret. That is, its understanding would not come until uh, other revelation came along which made this clear. For it pertains to many days in the future. I'm sure that even though Daniel understood when, the, when he's talking to the angel, he says, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? The angel said, well, the first horn represents this king. The other four horns represent these other kings. But Daniel didn't see it because in prophecy you may have a pretty good idea of how things might work out in a, in a, in a broad pattern. You don't know the details until afterwards. So much of this was was still somewhat obscure to Daniel. And then Daniel states in verse 27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up and carried on the king's business. He's still in Babylon, remember. And I was astounded at the vision, but there was none to explain it. See, he understood it generally, but he just didn't have those specifics. And even though when we study prophecy, there are many things that we think we understand from about Revelation, many things we can't understand, there are also things that we won't understand until it actually happens. And we'll say, oh, that's what... That's how it worked out, because we're not given every specific detail. That's why you've got to be so careful with these, trying to use prophecy to evaluate what's going on in, uh, in contemporary times. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, the insight it gives us into what's going on today in history, to see how it fits into the flow of history that, that goes for thousands of years. Father, we thank you that, that you control history. And we know that everything is working together uh, for your for good, and everything is working together for your glory. Pray that you'd help us to uh, understand these things, and as we watch the news and understand contemporary events, that we will have a greater understanding of what is happening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.